Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Except it's not Richard Watts today. You're here with Oliver Coleman filling in for Richard until 12pm here on Smart Arts on Triple R. And it's very good to be here with you. What a pleasure it is to be filling in for the incomparable Richard Watts, who I believe is down in Hobart for the next couple of days, sampling all the delights of their winter arts festival, Dark Mofo. And uh, no doubt he'll be back with you next week to share the highlights of what he's seen down there with you. Uh, Aphids is an artist-led experimental art and performance group based here in... um, uh, they've been here around, kicking around for quite a while now, making all kinds of work in all sorts of places, from theatres to town halls to drive-in movie theatres, since way back in 1994. Uh, the current incarnation of the company is led by co-artistic directors Lara Toms and Mish Grigor, and it just so happens that tonight Aphids is premiering their most recent performance work entitled Oh Dear as part of Rising Festival at the Capitol Theatre in the city centre. And I was lucky enough to sneak in to be able to watch a dress rehearsal in the theatre yesterday. And I really, I really love the production and what, I'm, what I saw. So I'm very happy to be joined on the phone this morning by co-artistic director of Aphids and director and lead artist of OD, Lara Toms. Lara, thanks so much for being here with us on Smart Arts. Hi, thanks for having me. Lara, so this show is is made by you and and a group of over a dozen performers and code devisers, all of whom have lost a parent. Um, I might just ask you to start off by giving us a, a brief introduction into what the show is and, and I suppose what the starting point was for devising the show. Yeah, well, I guess the work began from this idea of a, a dead parents club and that a lot of people, um, after they go through such a loss, kind of notice all the other people that have been through the same thing. And we we came together to interrogate the the differences between, I guess, our own lived experience and how it's represented in popular culture. So um, looking at a lot of children's movies and literature and Disney characters, I just noticed that most of them are written in as orphans. And they either lose a parent at the beginning of a rollicking adventure or um, have never sort of had their parent on the scene. And I I was just so curious about this trope and um, brought together a whole lot of different kinds of artists, from sort of poets to dancers to comedians to experimental noisemakers and Together we we built this piece and sort of interrogated all these tropes um, while dressed as quite unusual um, popular culture characters. <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was fabulous being there yesterday, seeing everyone uh, dressed up as the characters from these various uh, works of, of, of pop culture, and I, and I was I was really struck as well by the kind of huge diversity of, of artists that you've included. You know, you've got Tony Yap, kind of a, I suppose a legend of the Melbourne dance scene. You've got Josh Glantz, a, a comedian, Bron Batten, kind of more an experimental performance artist. That's just to name a few of the. Uh, the ensemble of, I suppose, of a dozen or so artists. What's what's the process been like working with people who are bringing all different sorts of disciplines to uh, the devising process and, and the rehearsal room? It's been pretty amazing. I think um, we all came with sort of quite an openness and much of the process has been a lot of chatting and connecting on a personal level um, before an artistic level and, and, you know, sharing those memories and those experiences and checking in and checking out. And from that kind of, I guess, quite connected point, there's been, like, a lot of really nice jokes and improvisations and um, offers in the room. And so while I came with kind of, scenes and ideas and characters and structures for the piece. 
Um, it is is very much woven in a lot of different practices, a lot of yeah, movement, comedy, <laughs> experimentation. It's a real kind of motley crew of people. It, yeah, exploring a quite a universal subject matter. So somehow this yeah, this hybrid mashup is um, is very interesting for me. Yeah. And, and and you're also talking there about how there's been a lot of camaraderie uh, with the group. Uh, everyone's kind of sharing their own personal experiences, and that's that's a big part of the show as as well. People are on stage talking about their own parents and and that loss and that grief. Um, you know, I, I suppose kind of some of the worst moments in their lives. Um, and I, I was also struck by the fact that there is. A psychologist uh, there on stage as well, who I believe was involved in in the process. How, you know, how how do you go about making a work that kind of tackles uh, these difficult moments in in, in people's life? I I suppose in a way that's kind of safe for the the cast as as well. Yeah, I think it's... um it's a responsive process, so it's being able to really be with people and be as kind of vulnerable and, and exposed as what you're asking from them. So I have that lived experience of losing both my parents in, in my 20s, and much of the crew does as well, so even the costume designer and mm. the makeup artist. Um, and I guess, yeah... AFIDS has a long history of working with lived experience with when we make work. So people that are using, you know, their jobs or their, um, yeah, their their life stories in a work and essentially being them, their authentic selves on stage rather than, um, you know, being someone else and acting. So from sort of many years of, of working in these kind of processes, it's it's a lot of conversations, it's a lot of checking in, and it's a, a lot of sort of people being able to feel like they have the autonomy to say yes or say no and that they're supported properly throughout the process. But, you know, no one knows exactly what the, the, the right way to make a work like this is. So it's, it's very much an exploration between all of us, and I feel like this idea of, you know, can't choose your family, but you can <laughs> bring together a, a, a group of people that really gets each other and, and wants to sort of care and support for each, each other throughout something like this. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I got the impression watching it that there was that real sense of camaraderie and there, and there was a real bond between the cast on stage. I, I suppose when, you, when you're making a work like this, obviously it's always going to be seen by an audience, you know, um, and that's, mm. and that's important, but I suppose, yeah. Do you consider the process being just as meaningful as that, as that end product as in, you know, it's meant to be just as meaningful for the people making it as the people watching it. Mm. Um, I hope, yeah, I hope the process is, is valued in the same way that a, an outcome would be. And I, I do believe that, you know, working with all these people has been a, a massive kind of feat and a and a really sort of exciting journey for me as an artist and for aphids. And I, I, I believe everyone involved has felt a really yeah, a big investment in in making the work. So um yeah, we have like a dramaturg that's constantly looking at the sort of the audience response and, and, and looking after the audience at that point. But I think a big part of my job is is looking after the cast and um yeah I, I i really i really believe in um processes feeling really strong and connected and that does make a, a special show in the end yeah yeah and and also watching it you know it's playing in the in the capital theater in in the city which is kind of a mm-hmm. it's kind of a big space but i was struck by how uh, intimate it, it ended up feeling and i think a lot of that for me came from the use of a camera on stage filming it and, and projecting what's happening this kind of use of of, of cinema in, in what way kind of did you consider that throughout the process in terms of trying to bring these kind of cinematic moments to life well, one of my first sort of ideas around the piece was this idea of, you know, Simba um, making a sandwich for Frodo Baggins or um, Elsa touching the hair and sort of looking after Belle. So these 
these characters going from, uh, you know, intersecting into a world of just kind of everyday care that perhaps a parent might offer a child. That kind of physical image was sort of a real starting point for me. So I knew that, you know, the delicacy of both the costumes and, and these little acts couldn't necessarily be read from far away. So being able to bring that intimacy through a screen, through a live camera, you know, there's no pre-recorded footage, there's no editing, it's just all very sort of visceral and raw um, up there, I think has made a, a huge difference. And Solomon Thomas, the video artist, really um, understood that and was really with us throughout the whole process and not never placing, you know, the needs of um, the camera above the needs of, of what was happening live. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned that uh, uh, Simba making a sandwich for Frodo Baggins, which is a, a, a funny image. And I must say, watching it, um, you know, it, it's heavy subject matter and it's emotional and moving and touching. But I was also struck by how funny the work is. I suppose, what role do, 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 does humour play in, in bringing something like this to the stage? And I suppose also in, in dealing with kind of grief and, and these difficult moments in, in life in, gen, in general. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's essential. And I think, with, you know, a lot of the work I've made, the serious subject matter is opened up through an accessible humour or aesthetic. And in this case, like, everyone in the show is really funny, but also <laughs> as people, but also the, um, I guess, the, the, the way of coping with, with grief often, um, you know, is, is used, humour is used for, for that coping mechanism. And also there's a lot of, like, I guess, absurdity that comes with death and grief that doesn't necessarily get seen or talked about. But some of, you know, there's a, there's a story in the show about someone who um, invited their father's friend to do a speech at their dad's funeral. And in, in, instead of kind of talking about their dad, it was uh, used as a platform to sell ice cream because the friend owned an ice cream business and then brought out all this ice cream at the funeral. And so these kind of very oddball moments we've sort of taken from a lot of people's lives and, and explored them as much as the kind of more touching and poignant parts. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the show does have that equal balance of poignancy and 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 being moving and, and being funny. Um, Laura, this is actually the, the this kind of second work that you've made in the last few years about death. You also made uh, the director, where you appeared on stage alongside a funeral director to kind of demystify elements of the, of the funeral industry. I suppose, yeah, it, 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 this is something that you keep coming back to in your work, kind of death and, and the world around it. Um, do, do you feel like as a society we, we, we need to talk more about this sort of thing, about grief and, and death and, and all the stuff that goes around it? Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's still a pretty taboo topic and a lot of people feel quite at sea when um, someone around them loses someone. They don't really know what to say or what to do. Mm. And I think a lot of other kind of societies probably deal with it better than the West. And I think that, you know, being able to just open up channels for more conversation, bring, you know, humour and um, showcasing sort of what happens behind the scenes or on an individual level is like a, a great way to kind of try and demystify and, you know, perhaps um, create a little bit less fear around this thing that's going to happen to us all eventually. Yeah, and and I certainly feel coming out of the dress rehearsal yesterday that uh, uh, this show really allowed people to um, to have that conversation. You know, people who have lost a parent, and then people who I also saw the show with who who, did, who had lost a parent, kind of um, yeah, reacting to the work in in, in um, really meaningful ways. Uh, Aphids is presenting the world premiere of their work, Oh Dear, from tonight until Saturday as part of Rising Festival. This is a show made by a collective of performers who have all lost a parent, led by director Lara Toms, who I've been chatting to today. Lara, thanks so much for coming on to Smart Arts and talking with us about the show today. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, I was lucky enough to get along to a dress rehearsal at that production yesterday, uh, and I can highly recommend getting along. It's a really special show. Triple R. 
Uh, Red Stitch Actors Theatre, based down the St Kilda end of Chapel Street, has been around since around 2001. Unique in the Australian theatre landscape, Red Stitch is run and led by an ensemble of actors. Uh, Every year they bring to the stage a a season of works of new Australian plays or award-winning productions from overseas. Their latest production, opening in just under a week, is an Australian premiere of a new work by American playwright Claire Barron entitled Shh. I've tried to pronounce that as asmr as possible because that's relevant uh, to the play. I'm lucky enough uh, to be joined on the telephone by the director of Shh and also co-artistic director of Melbourne Theatre Company, The Rabble, Emma Valente, to talk about this upcoming production. Emma, good morning. Thanks so much for joining us on Smart Arts today. Good morning. So Shh made its world premiere at the Atlantic Theatre Company in 2022, I believe. Uh, Quite quickly, Red Stitch has has followed that up with an Australian premiere of the work only a year later. Uh, I might get you to start us off, Emma, by just briefly talking about uh, what the show is and and give the audience a a little bit of an introduction about what they can expect if they come and see the show. Sure. Um, well, I really appreciate that you've um, pronounced the title shh and not shush. Um, and it made the show really interesting to talk about. Every time I talk about it, the, like everyone around me quietens down. Yeah. Um, it's a passive-aggressive title. Yeah. Uh, it's um, what I would call a dramedy. Yep. Um, it's a really interesting and complex look at what it means to have a body in 2023. Um, uh, Its main kind of focus is looking at consent in all the small and big ways we might want to have a look at that now and sort of complexifying the issue so it's not just a kind of black and white yes-no kind of conversation, mm. but uh, a way more interesting conversation um, in the ways that we can say um, yes and no to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the, the themes of this show, kind of consent, uh, bodies, power dynamics, are all, are all themes that I've seen explored a lot throughout your body of work with The Rabble. You know, I'm, th- I'm thinking of shows like Yes or The Story of O or, or, or Frankenstein. I suppose, what, what was it that kind of about the text that, that drew you to this work initially? And I suppose, do you see parallels between this work that you're doing with, with Red Stitch and some of that work that you've previously made with, with kind of the similar themes? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. Most of the time, I devise work with the with my company, The Rabble, and yes, we've looked at uh, a lot of these themes in depth. And it's a it's a really rare occasion that um, someone hands me a script. Uh, in this case, Red Stitch, um, and I'm excited and enthusiastic about um, the content and also how the piece is framed and what kind of exciting theatrical opportunities. Um, are in the script. So um, I was so delighted to be asked to direct this. Um, it's really up my alley. Yeah, yeah, and for, for for listeners who who don't know, I suppose a- a- Emma has kind of uh, built their reputation with the Rabble, who uh, I, I, you know I suppose makes experimental work, imagistic work, kind of surreal work. Now, n- never having been I- inside a kind of Rabble rehearsal room, I imagine yeah, you work a lot in kind of that devising process, using kind of improvisation, kind of working of source material or, 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 or kind of other things. How has it been for you moving from that? Process process that you use with the rabble into kind of working with more of, I suppose, a traditional kind of text-based theatre form? Um, Well, I guess I um, have used uh, a lot of the tools that I would use in a rabble work in terms of um, the way the piece is physicalised and um, the way uh, we use images on stage. Um, The set is um, which is designed by Romani Harper, is this kind of beautiful rainbow unicorn kind of vomit. Um, and it's a beautiful space to, to make images in. Um, and I've used a lot of the kind of tools from the Rabble toolbox in terms of um, really 
trying to embody performance and um, that's the beautiful thing about theatre is that we're watching real bodies in real time. Yeah, yeah. And, and so the show is about uh, Shireen, who's uh, struggling with, I'm just reading off the website here, struggling in a complicated relationship, worrying about her mother and battling a range of, of health issues. Um, it's my understanding that in the original production uh, with the Atlantic Theatre Company, the playwright herself, Claire Barron, actually played that part and, and directed uh, the production. Has there been a kind of, I suppose, yeah, how autobiographical is the show about kind of the playwright's life? And, and has there been kind of any, I suppose, considerations in, in the process about kind of moving from a show where the playwright was in the actual show to a production where, I suppose, they're not, where you're working with a, a new ensemble of actors? Um, I think uh, from everything I've read and listened to, it, the, the piece is um, very close to Claire Barron and, and quite autobiographical. Um, and I think that we did a, a lot of research around that and listened to a lot of interviews by her. Um, but also it's, it's actually all there on the page. Um, I feel like Claire might have written this piece in a kind of um, flurry in a, in a way that peace might have just poured out of her um, and it's all there kind of on the page for us to um, understand and pick part. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I'm, and so you guys open in just uh, over a week. I'm here chatting with Emma Valente, uh, who is directing a new production of Shh at Red Stitch Actors uh, Theatre. From what I un- understand, reading a little, a little bit about the show, Emma, uh, there's quite a bit of kind of, I suppose, magic and, and ritual in, in kind of the text and the work. I suppose, yeah, how do, how do you think about, I, I suppose, magic in a theatrical space and kind of what relationship do you see between kind of the rituals of kind of spells and incantations and, I suppose, you know, the, the power of theatre to create kind of an otherworldly, strange or, I suppose, kind of magical space for the, for the audience to enter into? Um, I guess it's actually the way that I think about theatre is um, that we are trying to create something special and magical that um, happens to all of us, that happens to the performers, that happens to the audience. So um, it was such a thrill to read the scripts and realise there's um, a character who, whose name is Sally, but is actually um, titled in the script as um, Witchy Witch. <laughs> um, and uh, we get to kind of understand her um, power uh, through magic and um, we get to see a little bit of that on stage. Um, and I think somehow maybe in another life I would have been a magician. I love magic. I love illusion. Um, and I love the feeling that it uh, gives an audience um, when something impossible happens on stage. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's not too late. Maybe maybe you can learn if you uh, become a magician <laughs> <laughs> at some point. But, you know, having seen Rebel Productions in the past, I, I, I do get what you mean in terms of kind of, you know, entering into that space and, and seeing the impossible happen, seeing kind of magic kind of unfurl. Uh, before your eyes um, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of see what you bring out of, of this script as well. Um, you complimented me at the, at the beginning of the interview for my production my uh, pronunciation, sorry, of uh, the name Shh. Um, I've also noted that you're the, uh, the sound designer uh, and the composer uh, for the work it seems like one of the uh, characters in the show is uh, pretty interested in kind of ASMR um, kind of as your work as kind of the sound designer in the show kind of what kind of considerations have you brought to kind of asmr and kind of making that experience happen for the audience in this production um i love asmr and um i love um like really close sounds so i was really excited (laughs) to get to design this um and uh it's such a great theatrical gift because we get to um hear the body up close. We get to hear the mouth open and close. We get to hear spit in the back of the throat. Um, we get to hear the sounds of making a cup of tea really close. And it's a way of zooming the audience in to their own bodies 
as well and feeling the kind of um, pleasure of that but also the discomfort of that. Mm. And Red Stitch, I suppose, is quite a quite an intimate space, so you can really make those sort of uh, feelings of, of closeness and the intimacy with the, kind of the sound and the acting and the design all come together. Um, you're working with uh, Red Stitch uh, Theatre Company, who kind of works with an ensemble of actors. Um, are you working with the Red Stitch Ensemble, or have you also brought in some kind of outside actors for this production as well? Um. Both. So um, Jess Clark, uh, Caroline Lee and Hayley Edwards are part of the Standing Red Stitch Ensemble. And then I've also um, got the opportunity to bring in um, three other performers, um, Jess Lou, Peter Paltos and Sinandra Sakatral, um, which is, uh, it's a beautiful, brilliant, funny, devastating ensemble. I love them so much. Um, and they're working uh, incredibly as a team. Yeah, fantastic. And you're just kind of in the final week of rehearsals now. Uh, you're about to open next week. Is kind of everything coming coming together in the production? I am um, standing out front of the theatre at the moment, which is why I can't be in the studio. Um, and we've just gotten through our tech rehearsal and um, everything's... Um, looking magical and exciting. So uh, we're on track to preview on Tuesday and open next Friday. Fantastic. I'm really excited to see it. So Shh by US playwright Claire Barron is a fiercely provocative new play about empowerment, bodies, consent, and how we might learn to listen to one another's complex desires. It opens, as uh, Emma says, at Red Stitch next Friday, previewing on Tuesday. Uh, I've been speaking with the director of that production, Emma Valente. Thanks so much for joining us on Smart Arts today, Emma. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Just to run you through those dates again, Shh begins at Red Stitch on the 20th uh, and opens on Friday the 23rd and runs until the 16th of July. Uh, if you're interested in that production, the Australian premiere of uh, Shh by US playwright Claire Barron, you can go to redstitch.net to book tickets. Woo! <sighs> That's right, triple R. In the studio, I'm joined by stalwart of the Smart Arts program, Anne-Marie Peard, who normally comes in and chats with Richard, but I'm very glad to be chatting with you today. How are you going, Anne-Marie? I'm doing really well. It's quite exciting to be talking with you and not about you for once. I know. Normally, you are reviewing uh, my comedy show. I so, am. Yep. Who's your favourite critic, Ollie? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's Anne Marie Peard, and what a what a what a relief this morning to to not be at the other end of your cruel critical gaze. I my cruel critical gaze. Yeah, well, I think cruel critical gaze is something we might want to talk a bit about today. The rising festivals on at the moment, and what I've been quite fascinated by this week is the extreme responses um, some shows have had. There are three shows I've seen that have had that response of absolute, oh, best thing ever, love, love, mm. love, 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 absolutely obsessed with the company, best thing, and hate the absolute pile-on um, sometimes from critics, sometimes mm -hmm. from industry, sometimes friends talking after shows and seeing who can come up with the funniest put-down. Um, yes. The responses haven't been meh. They've been one or the other and yeah. sometimes being part of the conversation is really, really important to see these shows. Um, the ones I want to talk about, um, one I absolutely loved one I did not love at all, and one I've got very, very mixed feelings about. Um, so the three shows I do want to talk about are Tarns, which is by Floriana Holtzinger, who's a mm -hmm. choreographer from Austria. Um, the other is sort of the showcase of rising euphoria, the film that's on at the town hall, and yep. a show that I know you've seen, and we might save that up to the end to yep. talk about, called This, that um, has been made by David Woods, um, a lot of independent theatre makers in Melbourne and a lot of community artists in Melbourne and that's um, the one that's getting some very, very interesting 
interesting reviews. Yeah, I guess one of the great things about a festival like Rising is that it's a chance for, you know, the directors to kind of curate shows that do create always those kind of exciting responses, mm-hmm. people loving it and people hating it, kind of that kind of divisive discussion. Should we kick things off by talking about uh, maybe the one that you love? Let's go with the one I love. We all want to hear the one I love. Um, yeah. I was a big fan of Tarns. Some people didn't like it. They walked out of it. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of, oh, goodness, feminist gross out theatre, yuck, 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 women, bleh. <laughs> <laughs> That's my summary of some of the things I've read about this. Um, I absolutely loved it. So this is a piece that explores women and women's bodies and dance and dancing and I absolutely loved it. You know, yep. it's, um, you know, the big thing is, oh, the women are naked in the show and it's got, oh, and women's bodies are gross because there's blood and there's vomit and there's urine and there's real blood in this. Yeah. So it's often described as, you know, feminist and gross out. And it's like, yeah, it's both of these, but it's nothing about that at all. Firstly, it was hilarious. And I think that really surprised people that when we're talking about such huge, huge, huge issues, we can be really funny. Yeah. But what I got out of it is, you know, women... Women are slabs of flesh and we are treated like slabs of flesh in our industry, on our stages, in our lives. And on this stage were slabs of flesh who were doing strong, incredible, amazing, sometimes a little bit, oh, I need to take my glasses off, I don't need to see that. And making us laugh and experience and be a part of it and... You know, I got to watch a naked 80-year-old woman give bloody birth to a rat. That yeah. was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and there is um, something that has the, the shock value, which isn't shock value at the same time. There's a body suspension thing with a woman who does have two hooks put through her back and you can look at the screen and watch them going into her flesh and watch her blood. Or you can shut your eyes if you don't want to see that. Um, I was stayed for the performance where there was a Q&A afterwards and someone asked, oh, does that hurt? It's like she's got centimetre-wide hooks being put into her flesh and she's being hung by them. And the performer just went, yes, yes, it does. Yeah, okay. So, you know, this weird thing of, oh, women don't hurt, women don't bleed. Mm. And anyway, I really loved it and I am... the company's now uh, down at Dark Marf, Mofo doing a show there. So yeah. if you're in Tasmania, go and see whatever they do. I'm now a massive, massive fan of that. Yeah, and it sounds like a remarkable production where just from hearing mm. you talk then, kind of you're saying, you know, an 80-year-old woman give birth to a rat on stage is putting <laughs> bodies on stage yeah. in the public that aren't, you know, normally kind of... We don't you know, see 80-year-old naked bodies of a woman who's had a lumpectomy so her breasts are yeah. different sizes and she doesn't look like the 20-year-old bodies on the stage. Mm. And we don't. But, you know, women slabs of flesh and we're either sexualized or... The gross out thing, just because it actually wasn't that gross, but so many people talked about, oh, there's body functions and blood on this stage. So, well, yeah, that, that's what bodies do. And, yeah. you know, we're not just these little floaty fairy things. And it's oh, about ballet and flying. So these women fly in ways that are just amazing. Yeah, great. And I suppose... But it's finished. So it's finished, so... So, look, there's only on for three performances. Yes, people will have to fly to Tasmania to be and able to see And then see that. a different show. But this is a show. It's um, now been performed about 60 times around the world. It's a festival show. There'll be okay. opportunities to see this again. Maybe it will come back to a festival yeah. elsewhere in Australia. Um, what was the other show that you saw? Well, I saw Euphoria yesterday. Okay. So, this is the film by... If, can you open Julian up? Rosenfeld. Thank is you. That yep. <laughs> you know, just to let people in, um, my notes on my computer yes. at home didn't go through to my iCloud, so I'm going a bit blind today, which is awesome. Um, uh, listeners might know uh, his his other film showed at Acme last year. Yes, uh, our manifesto. Manifesto. And I unfortunately didn't see that. So this is being presented as sort of the big centerpiece of Rising, it was the first thing announced and Kate Blanchett um, voices a CGI tiger walking through a supermarket and, quite frankly, you can see that on the webpage. So mm-hmm. it's on at the Melbourne Town Hall. Um, it's got a very broad price range. It's pay what you like, which I like, and there are some free tickets on Fridays, but I think they've all gone. So you walk into the Melbourne Town Hall and the anticipation is amazing. You walk into this massive 
dark room and you get to sit on well, quite comfy seats on the floor or you can sit on a chair or you can stand. And on all four sides are a choir of young people just standing there on, on screens, I should yep. say. We missed that. And above them are giant screens with four different drummers with drum kits, five. And the sense of anticipation is this is going to be amazing. And they start singing sort of some, you know, Philip Glass-ish music that yep. isn't that good. It doesn't hit those heights. But we're just, the anticipation is amazing. You've got all these young people as a choir. You've got these drum kits are the sound you're expecting. And then you've got the screen up the front and it starts with these incredibly beautiful drone shots of what is New York. And this is going to be incredible. And no, you just keep waiting for something to happen. What it is is they take texts. It's about money is bad, capitalism is bad, Mm -hmm. patriarchy is bad, made by... Men with a ridiculous amount of money, the amount of money it took to make this film. I I don't even say it's a film. It's these sort of six different scenes of characters quoting famous quotes about economics, about power, about money. So we have Shakespeare to Snoop Dogg, I think it says in the publicity. So, you know, there's Anne Rand, there's some interesting things in there, but it's all things we've heard. They're not characters. They're just people talking and very, very earnest actors. What I was thinking, it's just, you know, homeless cosplay acting sometimes that these aren't characters telling us a story. These are people go, look at the world, the dystopian New York around us and we're going to quote things. Um, It was... I just felt like I was being mansplained to for two hours and... You there, stayed for the full thing because not everyone that. does. Yeah, yeah, I was with a friend and about 90 minutes we both did a time check and went – and I just opened my phone and went, let's see how long this is and how long we've got to go. And we still haven't seen Kate Blanchett as a tiger yet. We have to stay for that. <laughs> oh, I stay. But there was this constant sense of anticipation that something was going to happen. Visually, absolutely remarkable. And occasionally there are things on that screen that go, oh, my goodness, why aren't you playing with that? Why aren't we going mm-hmm. there? But it wasn't. It was just no story, no character, nothing to lead us through. Surrounded by the choir who sang very, very little and spent most of it standing there and these kids were bored. They had to have no reactions. So... It was actually more fascinating watching them and waiting to see if there was a loop to see if it looped around. And you're surrounded by people who seem genuinely bored, these giant drummers who don't come on play as something seemingly bored, and we're meant to be listening to why it was just money is a bad thing, it's not good for us, and look what it does to the world. But you have more money to make this film than... Most companies have and most filmmakers will ever have and the resources you had. It it didn't even have irony in it. Mm. It was just frustrating and it wasn't about Australia. It wasn't about us. And so much of what I have loved about Rising has been... Um, after that, I went and saw uh, Shadow Spirit, the exhibition on it, the ballroom. Yeah. Yeah. So that was Indigenous artists who were allowed to take over rooms it was. It's beautiful and it's funny and it's relevant and it's our stories, and that's exciting. This was just some. You didn't weird. feel anything. No, yeah. it was a reflection on the US, and yeah, I felt nothing. Yep. It, well, I did. I felt lots of things, but it wasn't euphoria. I know. And, it was, yeah, mm. inter- interesting. I was coming home from the the city uh, one yeah. night after seeing a, a rising show myself and mm. there was a group of about four friends um, who hearing you now talk, I realised were talking about <laughs> uh, euphoria. They must have all seen it. And I remember them going to each other being like, yeah, I was surrounded by a children's choir and normally I'd feel something, but I just, I, I, I felt nothing. And some of them in the group really liked it and, and, and some of them didn't. And, and I suppose, yeah, it's kind of emblematic of, of what these kind of big uh, showcase pieces like Euphoria do is they kind of provoke that conversation mm-hmm. amongst groups of people. Um, unfortunately, in this case, it's, it's, it <laughs> seems like a, a lot of people have been unmoved. Yeah, I hadn't read much about it because I'd sort of already heard it was a bit blur. And I thought, I want to go in and experience it because this is kind of stuff I like. But 
Yes. My recommendation is go and see Shadow Spirit. Go and see Tracker. Go and see something. Yeah. Go and see Aphids who opened tonight. I'm so excited yeah. to see that show. And Shadow Spirit runs, uh, I think, longer than, uh, than yeah. uh, Rising itself. I might so go back be... and see that again. Yeah. I really, really enjoyed it and I didn't have enough time to be fully engaged in it. But mm. it was beautiful. Yes. Shall we move on to the final production that we've both uh, seen, the production of... Uh, this, yes. which is happening at the Richmond former power station. It's been going for most of Rising and, mm. and it finishes on Sunday. So there's still a chance for people to see this one. It's actually nearly sold out. Um, oh. The one thing about getting bad reviews is people want to be a part of the conversation <laughs> and go along. Yes, this is a similar production where it seems like there's been, mm. I suppose, a, a, a fair bit of money uh, put into it and then well, there's kind of seen mixed responses. That isn't. I think there's a lot of stories about this being this incredibly well-funded show and we've got to remember there's a lot of yes. people in it who have all been paid. Yep. It's also been developed Over with a lot of actors, yeah, community actors. Yes. So David Woods, the director, has worked with people who lived in the Carlton Flats in public housing. This mm. is, you know, it's... A, it's a relevant show. This is a show that talks about homelessness and the politicisation of yeah. homelessness and public housing and property and development and politics and the absolute wankiness of arts festivals. It's got relevance up the wazoo. Yes. It's, it's an interesting show in that, I suppose, just to give uh, listeners a, a little bit of insight into it, it's, it's at the Richmond Former Power Station. It kind of begins as like an immersive theatre show where you enter the foyer of the power station and it's kind of like the, the launch of a festival like Rising. A festival director comes out to do a speech welcoming people to the festival. There's a speech from kind of the Defence Minister slash Minister for the Arts and then slowly things from there start unraveling. So it's an interesting show in that it's kind of criticising an institution like Rising Festival whilst kind of being in, in that same festival. That's something I quite liked about yeah. it with that speech vibe. Me too. And part of, you know, I was with people, I've made those speeches. A lot of us in this room have made those speeches. Yes, with this kind of yeah. tokenistic gestures mm. towards progressiveness and that sort of thing without actually kind of, you know, in the show kind of these characters kind of enacting those politics in any kind of real way. And it's that beginning of you've, if you're going to go there, go there. You don't make us feel guilty. You make us feel complicit because we are complicit in this and that's... And that's done in some really yeah. interesting ways, the the kind of nature of that kind of complicitness. We, we're kind of in a few However, little surprises which I won't... Yeah. It's had some reviews that have been... Look, to be honest, if you're going to call your show this, it's an anagram of shit and if you're going to set it in a big pile of mud, of course the critics are going to go there. Yes, and they're going to point to that. Of course we are. We've, give, give us a break. That's a, awesome. Metaphor we can play with. Yes. Mm. Um, yeah, but it, 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 I kind of, you know, uh, yeah, there's been kind of different responses to the work. Mm. But in terms of like pointing to the kind of the most moving part of, of the show for me was a kind of in the second half of the show where it becomes kind of more of a traditional kind of theatre piece where you're kind of so sat you've there watching the show. So you've walked through three different places and yes. this you're taken into a second space. Um, I can actually say I know that whole section has been changed um, since the first week. Um, so people are going to have a different experience of that. And then you walk into a more traditional theatre space, so it's not as they've taken over the whole ground floor and there's a seating bank apart from... I think you were sitting upstairs? I was, I was, I was standing upstairs, yeah. Oh, yeah. standing upstairs. Gracious. I was at least in a nice, comfy seat. Yes, which you do yeah. feel after a while because it is mm. over two and a half hours, yeah. this production. <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so yeah, in, in the second half of the show, you're kind of watching kind of the kind of underworld of, of the first half of the show, in kind of the bowels of this kind of power station. You're kind of seeing all kind of sorts of acts of kind of violence and kind of deprivation. And kind of hovering above that is this kind of public housing unit where there seems to be gathered a, a community of people um, kind of singing songs, dancing. Um, and these are the community artists who the director's been working with. Yeah. And so these are people living in public housing and it's living their lives and presenting it as something very, very different from what we perceive it as, um, you know, in a space that's, you know, being taken over again by developers mm -hmm. and what's happening to them. Look, we should say, you know, there's a lot of incredible writing and there's a lot of incredible performers. What... I found so frustrating about this is so many different voices, so many different writers, and there just wasn't a consistent story. We didn't have this, 
We didn't have a character. We didn't have a story that's pulling us through as an audience, as a narrative. We need that way in to let us see what it's like to be in someone else's world. And what we were watching is performers doing good jobs, being good, great some of the time, Mm -hmm. amazing writing, some incredible performances. But we weren't in their world. We were watching them. We were distanced from them. And there were so many different voices that there was... Nothing to make us feel a part of that. All we are doing is watching. Mm. And I think that's where sometimes boredom comes in. If we are not a part of that world, if we're not being drawn through, all we are doing is watching some people play around, no matter how good they were. So I wanted consistency. I wanted that story. And I wanted that beginning where it's you are talking about a very middle-class audience who are going to be buying those flats that are kicking people out of their homes and are making people homeless and you are not making us feel complicit. You are making us go, oh, that's a bit sad what's going on there. You are not making us go, oh, yeah, okay, this is us. So it's been fascinating. And if you look at the list of writers, there is... You know, something like twenty-something writers. Yeah. It does. It does. Watching it does. It does feel kind of cacophonous, and there's not really something that you can hold on to. And so, yeah, at the end of it, you kind of are left not. You're kind of thinking about things, but you're not left feeling a, a great deal. And no. you, you do feel the length of the production by the end of it. I Definitely. Think. And I do know it has um, come down in length since then. So a lot of feedback's been listened to. We saw it on opening night, um, I think. I think we were the second, second. night. No. <laughs> but there were, there were $3 tinnies at Interval, which I liked. Oh, I had to have a lemonade because I didn't want beer. Oh, well. And I don't really like lemonade. That was all there was. But I was hot and I was thirsty. Well, I hope they haven't changed the $3 tinnies. Yeah. Cause <laughs> that was good. Uh, I enjoyed that. Um, but it's been fascinating. I know the companies had quite... They're trying to deal with what it's like to be given reviews that yeah. are really, really horrible. Um, and then we go back to this thing of what do we expect from critics? Look. Yes, what do we uh, expect? What do we expect from critics? I can tell you as a critic I learned many years ago, don't read the Facebook thing about your review because mm-hmm. you are going to read grown-ups who you know saying, oh, she's on her period I, this is, you know, we have piles on them too. Yes. And then they ask you to review their shows. Like, no. Mm. Um, yes. So it isn't fascinating as a critic that the responses you get to your opinions and a lot of it is if you like the work, oh, you know, you're wonderful, yeah, coming on, blah, 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 blah. You don't like the work, you're an idiot. And yes. <laughs> there's just no in-between. So... I think it's fascinating how criticism is taken on without looking at the context of who it's written for, what publication it's written for, what editing could have gone on, Mm -hmm. who we're writing for, whether we're writing for a very specific audience, whether you're actually writing for the performers, which sometimes we do. So there's a lot more context out there and the fact is these very negative criticisms of this show, particularly the one in The Guardian, um, that's the one we were talking about, have made this show sell out. People are wanting to see it, to be a part of the conversation and to see what it's all about. And what people see this week will be very different from what people saw last week, which is the nature of live theatre that... And this is a world premiere, yeah. so it's, it's developing over the course of this It season. had a bit of a go... Um, in 2021, yeah, yeah when, it was, when it, it, COVID got in yeah. the way. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been around for a while. It's had a lot of work done on it. And goodness knows if we'll see this again. There's some fascinating work in there. I would love to see it get down to a shorter version and actually explore the issues. It's... There's so much understanding on the stage. I think that's what I found incredibly frustrating. It's like, I know what you're trying to There's do. There's incredible makers behind yeah, this show that have made extraordinary work. that was not coming yes. from the venue into the audience. We felt mm. very, very distanced. And distance sometimes is boredom. And people weren't walking out because they were shocked or horrified. They were walking out because they wanted to go and have a snack and... <laughs> go home. Yes, yes, And yes. 
whether that's good or bad, who knows, but it's something. And as I said, be part of the conversation. Make up your own minds when you read these diversive and you know, extreme reviews, good or bad. I've seen shows because they've had atrocious reviews because I go, I want to see that and make up my own mind. Yes, yes. And I've mm. done atrocious and I've I've, I've done a, <laughs> and I've done atrocious shows. I've done shows which have gotten both atrocious reviews yep. and great reviews. So kind of critics have different opinions as well um, a, a, across kind of various shows. I won't let you in on a secret that critics are human beings. Yes, Who and sometimes they change their minds. Sometimes they change their minds. <laughs> yes. Sometimes um, they're tired. Sometimes they have to write in a certain style. Exactly. Exactly. So I've been here with Sometimes uh, we don't like you work. Sometimes we love it. <laughs> and that yeah. will happen. And yeah. th- and this, which is uh, showing until Sunday as, as part of Rising Festival, uh, is producing all sorts of mixed responses. You still have a small chance to see it if you can grab a ticket. Yeah. Uh, I've been here on Triple R with Anne-Marie Peer chatting about all the different things that we've seen. Is there anything else you want to highlight before uh, so Rising I'm ends? really looking forward to um, tonight. I'm seeing Adrian Truscott's work, uh, Masterclass. Oh, cool. I know that yep. she's done with Broken Talkers and I'm seeing whatever show has has the word vibrator in the title because it has the word vibrator in the title. <laughs> and then I'm seeing Aphids Deer tomorrow night. I love every single person in Aphids. I love all the creators. I am so looking forward to that show. And it's about parental death. I'm either going to be a crying mess or yeah. laughing along with them. I don't think there'll be an in-between. Yes. Mm. And I, I got to, I was lucky enough to see a dress rehearsal yeah. of, of that show yesterday. And, and uh, yeah. I, I, I had a great time, so I can recommend uh, people uh, checking that one out uh, as well. So thanks so much for joining me in the studio today. Thank it's you been so much. Um, lovely to be here with you, Enrique Peard. You're listening to Smart Arts here on Triple R. Thanks very much for joining us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Westspace is an independent contemporary visual arts organisation housed in the recently redeveloped arts precinct at Collingwood Yards. However, it hasn't always lived there. The organisation was founded way back in 1993 as an artist-led space in Footscray. And over the next 30 years, Westspace has grown and evolved, establishing itself across several spaces in the CBD before moving to its current home at the Collingwood Yards in 2020. In celebration of their 30 years of operation, West Space is presenting an exhibition entitled Unison, which opens this Saturday. West Space curator and curator of Unison, Sebastian Henry-Jones, joins me on the phone. Seb, congratulations on the 30-year milestone, and thanks so much for joining me on Smart Arts today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um... Yeah, really happy to talk to you about the exhibition and West Space in general. Yeah, great. We're, we're really excited to um, to hear about it. The, the The tagline to Unison reads that it is a group exhibition exploring the idea that people are creative before they become artists. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about the starting point for putting together this exhibit and the initial ideas that you thought that you wanted to explore in Unison? Yeah, I mean, I guess you kind of outlined the history of West Space, but when it began, it was really DIY. Um, It was made by artists specifically for, um, like, giving themselves exhibiting opportunities. And today we, like, you know, we're an artist-run initiative, but I'm paid as a curator, for example. Mm -hmm. So we've we've had a lot of changes. Um, And, yeah, throughout the, the process of West Space changing, like, uh, I guess it, it's reflective of the sector more broadly, but this this sense of professionalisation has really occurred. That means, like, the way that we understand culture is very much connected to, um, like, the architectural limitations of art spaces, the limitations of, like, um, an art degree, for example, and the way we learn about art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess this idea that artists, that people are creative before they become artists, comes from this this idea that, like. I'm an arts worker, but the most um, meaningful experiences I've had with culture have happened in art galleries. So, yes. yeah, just thinking about the way West Space has changed over the last 30 years as um, demonstrative of the sector more broadly, I wanted to expand, like, um, the possibilities of, like, what an, a contemporary art space in Australia in the 21st century could be. 
Yeah, and so it seems like that you're kind of kind of trying to question uh, the kind of narrative a- around art spaces and kind of who can be I- I- included in those spaces. For example, you've got kind of works from Aotearoan artist Susan Te Kahurangi King, who's in her seventies now, who never undertook any formal training and who's kind of kind of kind of really blown up over the last few decades. So yeah, I suppose yeah, talk a little bit more around kind of how you're trying to kind of yeah really kind of broaden uh, who is included and kind of how you're kind of changing the narratives about who can be included in these kind of like exhibiting spaces in the contemporary art world? Yeah, I suppose, um, I mean, to use the C word, but under, under capitalism, like our relationship to creativity is totally shifted. Like the way we understand creativity in art spaces today is like predicated on having access to like resources, having access to time, having access to an education. So it's a very privileged position when in actuality, like the way I understand it, like people are creative before they get the funding application. You know what I mean? Before they have the permission from the art space to make an artwork. Like it's, yeah, the way creativity works isn't necessarily the way that um, it plays out within the industry. And so, yeah, a lot of the artists in the show, like Susan, represent this kind of very, um, almost like a pirate or like um, DOI or or like bootleg attitude towards time, resources and art making. So Susan's an artist who, you know, she's in her 70s now, but when she's like, she's been uh, making drawings like profusely since the age of like eight Mm. um, for much of her career without any institutional recognition. Um, it was only in the 90s that um, she was kind of discovered, in quotation marks. Um, and I get the sense that, you know, whether she was discovered or enjoyed the success in the art market or in institutions, like, she would still be making the thing that she loves doing um, either way. Does that make sense? That makes total sense, yeah. yeah. And, and I also see... Um here that you're kind of uh, representing kind of several artists from West Spaces history, kind of established artists like Christian Thompson and, and, and Stephen yeah. Um Talk to me yeah, a, a little bit about how you're kind of representing those works and placing them in conversation with kind of newer works that West Space is exhibiting as well. Yeah, one thing I wanted to do was, yeah, like literally represent um, particular artworks from our past, um, and just by doing that, uh, thinking about the ways that West Space has changed or how it hasn't changed. So a really good example um, is um, an exhibition by Christian Thompson that he had at West Space in 2006. And I guess he was interested um, as an Aboriginal artist in the idea that if you're, you know, whether you're an Aboriginal artist living in an urban centre or living on country um, in a community, your artwork is understood along a binary of, you know, um, you're an Aboriginal artist making traditional artwork or you're making contemporary art, which isn't connected necessarily to culture. Mm. Um, And he really wanted to interrogate that binary, which is something that Stephen Rawl did um, for his exhibition in 2021 at West Space. So I'm interested in that, um, the, the lineage of that, kind of research throughout our programming. Um, the third work that I'm representing in the show is by an artist, Salotti Sawale. Um, so she had an exhibition at West Space in 2014 um, called Colonising West Space, um, which is in some part a response to um, the not very diverse community around the Artist Run Initiative at that time. Um, so in representing a work from that exhibition, I want to think about like whether the community around West Space has changed mm-hmm. um, today. Um, I think those discussions are really interesting. Yeah, and I think those are kind of important kind of ongoing discussions which kind of First Nations artists are kind of continually kind of having to have, I suppose. It was kind of, you know, as recently as maybe 2015, I think, when kind of Grace and Perry kind of the British artists kind of landed in hot water kind of, yeah, you know, questioning First Nations kind of art art kind of inclusion in the kind of contemporary art world and that sort of thing, comments that maybe he regrets now. Um, yeah, so I suppose kind of West Space, with this exhibit, you're kind of, kind of working to kind of question those na- narratives and kind of decolonise kind of the art spaces in that way. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, no, sorry, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, great. Um, so I'm here joined by Sebastian Henry-Jones, curator at West Space, uh, talking about the new exhibit they have um, happening uh, at Collingwood Yards, uh, opening this Sunday, called Unison. Um, Seb, uh, yeah, West Space has been around for 30 years now. Uh, talk to me a little bit more about, um, yeah, I suppose how West Space has grown in its different venues, kind of where it sits now in kind of the general kind of, you know, ecology of the kind of contemporary art visual world in, in Melbourne. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting story because our story does kind of encapsulate um, the visual arts sector more more broadly and the changes that have happened in there over the last 30 years. But, um, yeah, essentially when we began, you know, it was really artist-led. There were no um, funding applications. Everyone was volunteering their time. Um, and now, yeah, we have, like, a full-time director. There's a part-time curator. We have um, casual gallery staff. Um, that the program now is half internally curated, half um, programmed through an open call. Um, we have a board, so yeah, we've really undergone this process of professionalisation. And it's interesting to think about our beginnings in Western Melbourne in Footscray, mm-hmm. um, and now our location in a multi-arts precinct in Collingwood Yards, which is kind of um, embodies. Uh, the broader changes happening throughout the suburbs of Fitzroy Collingwood um, in terms of, like, their urban transformation. Yes. Um, I guess that's another conversation I wanted to have, like, this, the role of, of art, um, creative practice and art spaces in the urban transformation of um, urban centres. Um, yeah, that's, I think that's a really going to be a much more um, prevalent discussion over the next few years, for sure. Yeah, fantastic. And I, I also know uh, you're talking there about kind of uh, the kind of increase in the nature of kind of professionalization within contemporary art and, and also at West Space, but also kind of the role of art and an art space in the local community. I know that with uh, this current exhibition, Unison, Yarra Youth Services is credited as an artist and collaborator. Kind of what role have they played in Unison? And also, I suppose, yeah, how are you trying to kind of, you know, as you were talking about it there, include the kind of local community? community in kind of the work that West Space does in general? Yeah, so um, because we're pretty new in our, in our current location at Collingwood Yards, um, one of the things we're trying to do very slowly is develop um, relationships with our neighbours um, and those neighbours who um, in particular might not necessarily like go to art spaces very often, which is, you know, um, you know in often cases like quite rightly so. Um, so we've done a few things with Yarra Youth Centre uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but for this exhibition, uh, an artist who has a studio in Collingwood Yard, um, Myra Oosterweghel, has uh, conducted a series of workshops with young people um, at the Youth Centre, and mm-hmm. they'll be presenting their creations um, in the exhibition. I really wanted this idea, you know, if we're showing the work of um, artists who are self-taught, who, you know, is in Susan's case, who are quite established, I really wanted to, um, you know, bring in um, young people who also haven't, you know, gone to university or studied art history exactly um, to give them a sense of, like, I don't know, make them feel like they actually do belong in these spaces and that they don't need, like, some kind of special degree or expertise to partake in, like, art-making, essentially. Yes, and as you said earlier, the kind of exhibition is kind of exploring that idea that people are creative before they're necessarily kind of branded as artists uh, by the outside world or by an industry. And it sounds like that the exhibit is is kind of trying to show people kind of at all spectrums of that journey. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even this idea of like, I mean, West Space, kind of the rhetoric around West Space is that we work with emerging artists, but like that category is so... Um, chorus, like an artist can be emerging in their 60s or an artist can emerge and then re-emerge later on. So, yeah, yeah just trying to dissolve those um, really strong categories that we have around 
what an artist is and who can make art. Exactly. And I think an artist like uh, Susan kind of displays that as well. I think she took maybe like a decade break from kind of drawing at a certain point in her career. Um, on the 5th of August, uh, West Space is hosting a one-day symposium expanding on the themes of the exhibition. Uh, what can people expect from that day, Seb? Yeah, I guess an in-depth discussion about some of the ideas that we've been talking about in this interview, but we're thinking about, you know, something like a performance lecture to interrogate, like, the creation of culture, um, you know, whether it be sponsored by the state or sponsored by, like, private benefactors, um, what it means for our capacity to think critically, um, which is, I think, a really interesting discussion. Um yeah, some panel discussions with people who have been involved in uh, West Space's history, combined with artists in the show. Um, we're also planning, like, a cake parade. Yes, this um, sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah, a cake parade in which um, you might register with your team. It's going to be open to everyone. But the night before the event, you kind of make a cake. Um, you can make a cake in the theme. So the theme might be, um, I don't know, basketball. Um, and then on the day, you kind of dress up as your cake and present it to um, a panel of judges in kind of a, like a live context. Um, I've done it a couple of times before, and it's really fun. Yeah, that sounds like a real joy, uh, that event. And that's still open. Listeners can kind of enter that cake parade uh, competition if they like. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we haven't set up the registration portal or anything yet. Um, so Correct. everything's TBC, but we'll put everything out on socials and on our website when... Um, and it's all ready to go. Yes, and that's not until the 5th of August, so listeners still have uh, quite a while before they have to start thinking about what sort of cake uh, they're going to make. Uh, established in 1993, West Space is this year cele- celebrating their 30-year anniversary as one of the leading independent visual arts organisations uh, with the exhibit Unison, which opens this Saturday, the 17th, and runs until August 12th at their space in Collingwood Yards. Uh, get along and catch it whilst you can. I've been chatting with Sebastian Henry-Jones today, West Space curator and uh, curator of that exhibit. Seb, thanks so much for joining us on Smart Arts and chatting about everything and you've been doing with Unison and also the good work uh, that West Space does. Congratulations on the 30 years. Thanks so much and thanks for having me. Cheers. Good luck with the next 30 years as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 